0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: I'm Sam Edwards. I'm third generation cure master from S. Wallace Edwards and Sons in Surrey, Virginia. We support the Heritage Radio Network because we believe in the cause and what they're doing. They're supporting family-raised livestock, small family farms, uh, certified humane, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free. Basically, we take the products from Heritage Foods USA and make them into uh, serrano-style hands, prosciutto-style hands, bacon, sausage, like my grandfather did. You can find us at surreyfarms.com. Dot com or Virginia dot com.
2: Hello, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm Linda Palaccio, your host on Heritage Radio Network. And we are pleased every week to be able to give you a little journey through culinary history of some area of cuisines or foods. And today, I am extremely happy to have a very well-known guest whose reputation precedes her, precedes this book. And And her name is Joan Nathan. Many of you will know her from several of her cookbooks, as well as... Um, a PBS show she had on for several years called it, Ameri- Jewish
3: Cooking in Jewish, America.
2: Jewish Cooking in America. With Joan Nathan. With Joan Nathan, of course. <laughs> Welcome, Joan. Hi. Um, Joan's most recent book is called Keisha's Kugels, and Couscous My Search for Jewish Cooking in France. And just before the show, Joan and I were talking, and I said, you know, I don't know, the title of the book maybe doesn't do it justice. <laughs> this book is such a wonderful uh, anthropologic book research um, in of, of Jews in France and uh, a real history that you've given and I'm I'm very impressed and I thank you for writing it because it puts so many things in perspective what now you were lucky enough to go to France when you were young but mm-hmm. it wasn't just about
3: learning the language right you fell right. in love with well I, I fell in love with the food and actually I'm Jewish of course but I never thought of Jewish food. When I was in France as a young girl, I thought of French food, and that's how I love, fell in love with food. Um, and then later, when I talked to people, I, I realized I still thought about French food, and it wasn't until I had written books on Israeli food, American food, American Jewish food, that I started to think about French Jewish food. And it was I think that it was... At a time when um, the Jews of France started thinking more about who they were, this was uh, it, it, this was about ten years ago that I started thinking about Jewish food in France because Jews were talking more about their background. They weren't talking about it at all before they, they were getting they
2: were very late to to come to. They, they were
3: getting on with their lives after World War II, yeah. which was you know terrible for them. The Eighty three thousand of them were taken and killed in Auschwitz. Yeah. And um, But more Jews returned to France than to any other country in Europe. So many Jews were protected by righteous Gentiles Mm -hmm. throughout France. And I I think that, you know, it's it's like my mother-in-law, who's Polish, came to this country after the war. And she didn't think about her background. She was so busy getting on with her life, making money so that her family could be provided for. And, you know, she she, she was very poor her whole life. But it wasn't until later, before she died, that she really thought about the war. And I think it's the same thing with the French Jews and the, and my awareness of Judaism. So I learned about Jewish food in America and Jewish food in Israel, and then I realized, wait a second, France was always the new promise or the old promised land. Jews and others came to France certainly after the French Revolution, but even before it was the richest agricultural country in Europe. And people flocked there. And And why not? There's Paris. That's you right. Know? Well, I was going to say, why not
2: return once everything is settled? Because what a beautiful place to live. And that's and that's their home. It's their identity. You said something very interesting in the book that they they were thinking, which is what I think, and even still when I read the book, that they thought of their food as, and think of their food still, as French cuisine. It's not French Jewish cuisine necessarily until they start to examine it. So that's my next question. What is there really a French Jewish cuisine, and what is it?
3: Well, I I would say they're French Jewish cuisines. Jews have lived in France for over 2,000 years. They came from Palestina, which was what the Romans called um, ancient Israel, to Rome with the destruction of the Second Temple. So there's one so way... they were some of the earliest settlers absolutely. in, in Gaul, absolutely, right, as you mentioned. Yeah. Exactly. So they came to Marseille and that whole area in the south of France. So there are Jews that have lived there for 2,000 years. And of course, those are Provencal Jews. Their food is going to be southern French uh, food, but also that's what Jewish food was. Until then, then the Jews went north to a place called Ashkenaz, and Mm -hmm. that's where the beginning of Ashkenazic cuisine, which was in Champagne, where the the, um, philosopher and rabbi Rashi lived, and in Alsace-Lorraine, and and southern Germany, because, you know, the the lines of a country were different then. Right, it was the Roman Empire. (laughs) Right, so that you get Ashkenazic food that started there, like Kugel, a German word, Knudel for matzo balls. All those things started in southern France and I mean, northern France and uh, southern Germany, and then they went east to Poland and Russia, and came back in different incarnations.
2: And that's what I and that's what I got from the book. There were really you you see the influences of these different areas in the food, and there's really like two or three. Well, then the North Africans came later, but right. So you see these influences very.
3: But but very North Africans way. came later. However, those North Africans were some of the early Jews that came. So, so Sephardic. Became Sephardic Jews because right. they came to Catalonia. Half of Catalonia was France, and then after the Inquisition, they went to North Africa. And then so and and then they came back <laughs> again. It's so fascinating. And but in addition, a lot of Russian and Polish Jews came over, so that their cooking today is more like what it was in Poland and Russia than American Jewish. Um, Eastern European cookie because we ours was we have the imprint of America so we've got the imprint of processed foods we have the imprint of for example a cheesecake in America we have um, Philadelphia cream cheese- Philadelphia cream cheesecake rather than the creme fraiche and the farmer's cheese that's in a French. Cheesecake, yeah, cheesecake right. and then the crust in America is mostly graham cracker crust because Joseph Kraft, who owned Philadelphia Cream Cheese, also bought a graham cracker company and pushed his products oh, now on America. That's America's. interesting. That's something I didn't. That's a nice. New and tradition. in France, <laughs> the cheesecake. If you go to the Marais in Paris, mm. it has no crust, so it's less fattening, well, like a, che- a thick cheese souffle. Right. <laughs> so that French Jewish food, I, I always say it's regional. And religious, so that it depends on where you were from and what region you came from and what region you live in, mm-hmm. in France, so that you have also that the, 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 after the Inquisition, Jews from Spain and Portugal came to France. Um, as the marchands portuguese uh-huh. and they portuguese merchants and they brought with them chocolate from the new world that came to spain but chocolate as a drink so they were the first chocolate makers in bayonne in france i mean it's really interesting and jews have been, been inextricably bound with the 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 commerce of food Mm-hmm. Throughout history in France,
2: well, you did. You mentioned how um, they were traders um, in spices and and different food products. Obviously, in right. that's how they became valued and <laughs> in for their goods and um, and the use of these then were incorporated in the dishes right. as
3: well. Interesting, and, and and also just an answer to your question, there I would say that there are many Jewish French cuisines. There's Alsatian Jewish cuisine, so that it's more regional, Mm -hmm. which is very different from North African French cuisine, um, or Eastern European, which has a little bit of a French touch on it, but it's still Eastern European, because Jews take out the traditional recipes for the Sabbath Mm -hmm. and for holidays.
2: I was going to mention that you said that there... You know, you—that's where you find the real Jewish cooking is at holiday time, and that's—I think—that's true with just about any cultural ethnic background. It's always at holiday time we we go to absolutely you know, to what we are we remember from our childhood and and before. Um, well, you have certainly done your homework in terms of <laughs> <laughs> of Jewish cooking. Um, this is what your tenth book or tenth tenth book, and um, primarily in Jewish cooking, not not everything in Jewish cooking. But you even you began by working in Jerusalem for the mayor there, and something that I didn't know about when you were working for A. Beam here in New York City, talk about food and ethnicities. You were one of the co-founders of the Ninth Avenue Food Festival. I was and indeed. I think that that, that is a, a wonderful credit. I think because now look at where we have come. As far as, that was one of the first ethnic food festivals i think that there was and, and it I mean, was
3: you know when we started it i was thinking about this the other day we didn't know if anybody would show up you know uh-huh. we had no advertising budget so we had this i gave had this idea one or two of us did and we talked to the mayor and to know the mayor's press secretary so he said i'm totally behind this idea and he said you can have the mayor's backing so of course i spoke to the um, recreation units, they gave us all of their recreation facilities to, to bring to Ninth Avenue. But we couldn't get the merchants to really be interested in it until New York Magazine had a pullout on Ninth Avenue and Craig Claiborne had a full page on Ninth Avenue just before. So then they suddenly got flags and, 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 you know, they, they got involved in it. But we, we were, really didn't know if anybody would show up and this was uh the year on this was 1970 70, uh 74, 74 yeah. and um and then when when people showed up we were just shocked at how many people showed up they uh, it was something like a hundred and fifty thousand people wow. and um and in at, at that time we had people like diana kennedy and michael and ariana batterbury um outside alps drugstore and other places oh and pearl what's her name pearl myers was one oh, another yeah, one pearl of and they were making salads or they were talking to it was so homespun uh-huh and then, it, you know, of course, nothing stays like that. Well, but it. Then, uh,
2: then came television, and they all became stars, and now. Right,
3: exactly. <laughs> and the rest is
2: history. That's right, indeed, indeed. Well, um, what, what made you want to go and do this book, particularly about French Jewish
3: cuisine? Well, you know, I'd finished my last book, and I was trying to think of another book to write, and then I thought, wait a minute, why haven't I done. French-Jewish cooking, and I speak fluent French, which really is a big help. Mm. And I know many, many people in France. I I have have relatives in France in Annecy, and I have very good uh, uh, I had a very good friend to whom I dedicated the book who died, but her children and her family are a very well-known French-Jewish family. So I I was able to use them to help me get other people. And, um, And I just thought that it 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 was nobody had ever done a book like this where you re, you know just think about it how many when I when I speak around the country I ask people well how many of you have ever gone to a French family well very few have mm-hmm. they do and, the tourist route and well and also and the French don't open their homes to you that often the French are much more reserved than many other countries and what I realized too in writing this book I learned a lot one of the things that I learned was that. Um, the 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 Jewish population of France is the third largest in the world of Jewish population, so it's after um, the United States and Israel. Mm -hmm. And um, half of the and so it's six hundred thousand. Half of this population lives in Paris, and almost half are from North Africa. So that when there's a marriage between a North African Jew and an Ashkenazi Jew. North African wins, hands down, gastronomically. So those are the recipes (laughs) that are incorporated. Um, And and, and yet there are some fabulous recipes um, from Alsace and from Eastern Europe that I found. And and in the book, I mean, not only is it a compendium of history,
2: but... um, the. Every recipe tells a wonderful story, and you and you give a little um, insight into the family that it comes from, that you found it, and and it personalizes it so much. It, it really is quite lovely. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about the, as you say, the global aspect of the French Jewish cuisine. We're going to take a short break, and when we come okay. back, we'll talk more with Joan Nathan. <laughs>
1: following is a public service announcement from heritage radio network tune in to greenhorn radio hosted by severin von scharner fleming every thursday at 2 p.m greenhorn radio is radio for young farmers by young farmers helmed by acclaimed activist farmer and documentarian severin fleming greenhorn radio is a weekly phone interview session surveying america's cutting edge under 40 farmers again that's every thursday at 2 p.m on the heritage radio network
2: And we are back on A Taste of the Past, talking with Joan Nathan. And Joan is talking about uh, Jewish cooking in France and how she uncovered a lot of the, the roots. And uh, Joan has been called the Doyenne of Jewish <laughs> cooking by Alice Waters, and, uh, amongst others. And it's true. You are. You have done so much research. And one thing that I was interested in, you um, you said you wrote this book. I asked you, why did you, you know, write this particular book, and of course you had so much background in French, but then you went on to mention in one of the, the blurbs that says that you were really trying to figure out the difference between the, whether it was Jewish influence on French cuisine
3: or vice versa. What did you find? Well, I found lots of things. First of all, I found that Jews have been living so long in France. I, I, I looked at the, the, a lot of the recipes of the South, um, the Juifs du pop. And I realized that many of them are so old that you can't tell what came first, the French or the Jewish. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you one example, fougasse, which is, you know, like a ladder bread. Well, I found in the 14th century somebody who – a a Jewish writer talking – criticizing the Jews of Carpentras for um, looking – dreaming about the um, cream and the butter that were used – in the um, Fugas at Shavuot, which is a holiday of milk and butter in the spring, and the cherries that were embedded. And I realized, reading that, number one, what they were talking about, which was the whole the bread, you know, the latter bread with holes in it mm-hmm. of the south of France, and that this was their Sabbath bread because why else would they be having that bread? And that they didn't have desserts then, maybe 14th, 13th century. Most people right. did, but a bread that was special like that because I found a little, like a a, a little song that said that um, if if you had oil in your bread, you were a Jew. And if you had... It didn't say if you had lard in it that you weren't, a, then you were a goy. <laughs> um, but the point is that this was a special bread for a special holiday, and the rest of the time you would use a kneaded bread that was for the Sabbath. And you, you I, I always found little surprises like that. Another surprise, I got a, an email from somebody whose family was of, of the Juifs de Popes. These were Jews that were protected by the popes mm-hmm. when Jews were kicked out of France in the 14th century um 15th 16th century and he said that he had a relative who was a truffle hunter and, and that he made so much money um finding truffles and selling it at the carpentras fair that is still to this day on sat on friday yeah. and sunday not saturday that he was able to be a rabbi the rest of the year huh. so i i realized that that they were much more involved in food than i ever thought that they were and um and I guess the other thing that I found that was, to me, very interesting was how different French Jewish food is, especially Eastern European Jewish food, from what it is in the United States. and mm-hmm. and that and what, also, what, what major difference? Um, well, as that? I said to you before, the processed foods. And that there were – another thing is we, we have – you know what a, a, a kugel is in mm-hmm. America. Well, in France, the real kugels are really like a bread pudding and with but with sauteed onions and sauteed pears mm. and plums and then you put on top of it a compote of pears and plums it's delicious wonderful. and but this was regional alsace they had wonderful pears wonderful plums and of course they would be dried plums and dried pears in the winter and this is what you got at that you know in in that um, regional Um, change from whatever you would use for the Sabbath. This was a second Sabbath dish. Um, I guess the other thing that I really learned, I've I've learned so many things in this book, I feel as if I learned where Jewish food went from ancient Israel before it came to America. Um, And and I learned so much about how um, a food, uh, how a cuisine gets um, embellished as as merchants go out and discover spices and or, and or explore or discover the new world and bring new world foods back and that and that the Jewish community especially of Alsace to this day because I, I always maintain that traditional foods are the last to go in a culture um, they've they had two two sauces that were fourteenth century and i saw them in taiwan's cookbook and the two sto- sauces were carpa la juive which is with a parsley sauce mm-hmm. and another one a sweet and sour sauce which had all kinds of um, spices in it but it was it's, it's, you, both of them were used to this day with carp not gefilte fish but just okay, carp okay. cold and it's Within France, nobody uses these sauces yet hmm. to, to, the, to this day. But the Jews do, of Alsace. Why? Because they were traditional. You use them every week for Sabbath and for the holidays. And that's what remained in a culture. So it's been going on for fifth, uh, for 14, 400 years. And yeah. it's still there. More than 400 more, years.
2: Yeah. Now we're in the 2000s. Well, it, and, and that is such an important thing, is to try to... Not that every... I mean, there is... A globalization of cuisine I understand But it is I think it's It's really important To a lot of us To hold on To some of these traditions To pass on to our children So they know What it was Or put it down in books so people in the future will know where did it come from how right. did how do we know where this you know where else And, it all and
3: the other thing that was very surprising to me it wasn't so surprising but I learned from it and I have a little box in my book on pork and the Jews and um at the at the Dom de Comus which was a very popular um cookbook in I think the 17th century in the third edition um the introduction talked about if you really want to learn about the development of cuisine you have to go to the ancient the israelites and how they but they the, that they have not really progressed because they don't eat pork and what upstanding frenchman would not eat pork mm-hmm. and you can see it's like the it's where the progression of cuisine is, that the Jews never would... They were so stubborn that they wouldn't adapt that. And I remember when I was um, interviewing... You know, I was interviewing so many people. It was just so much fun. I was in the south of France with a rugby player, and we spent a day together. He was showing me, introducing me to some Jewish people near working he was around that area. And he said, you know, tell me something. I remember we were looking for mushrooms at that point. He said... <laughs> um, you know, you're just like me, but why is it you Jews don't eat pork? And it was the same thing that you, you know, it, it, it's in, in the French um, after the uh, the French Revolution, the egalite, fraternite, liberté, but the egalite, you, you know, you eat pork, yeah. and well. it, and these stubborn Jews wouldn't do it, so it made <laughs> made them different.
2: Right? Tough question.
3: Right?
2: Um, there's we're, um, two things that I wanted to. <laughs> Follow up on that you just talked about One you said things that were precursors And that and that you looked back And what came first, the chicken or the egg Because some of these dishes have been around so long Or some adaptation And one thing that was nicely surprising A, uh, a brasados Tell uh, us what that is Oh
3: uh, well it's really interesting It's a it, it's a little bit sweeter than a bagel But it's like a bagel And it's from Portugal And it's it, brasados they, They're like a, a roll with a hole but not deep fried, but baked. And this was definitely a Portuguese, so again. A precursor to. to Well, a precursor in one way to the bagel. Um, there are others that I found in France. In the, um, in Haute Savoie, there was a boiled and baked roll with a hole. Because I really think they all came from Egypt originally. Mm-hmm. Went to Puglia. You know, those little wonderful, I forget what they're called, the, the uh. crack crack they're like I love them they're like a um, we call them cock and and, uh, yeah it is so I mean when you think about it how many ways did people able to sell um, food so you'd take a pole and you put a roll with a hole on it and you'll see the pictures with the pole and all the
2: all the breads pile, you know strung on the pole right
3: Right. and but I I personally think that the um, you know the bagel started getting boiled in Poland and then um, for a very a, a reason that it was considered, if you boiled it and then baked it, then it would be, you could eat it, you didn't have to say a prayer over it and wash your hands. Mm-hmm. But in the end, they said, yes, you did have to say a prayer over it and wash your hands, because it was It was in the category of bread, but the rabbis thought, or, or the bakers might have thought originally, well, this would be in the category of a dumpling, and therefore you wouldn't have to say a prayer. But you did have to say a prayer. But anyway... Um, but you see the precursors, you see how food travels in mm-hmm. different ways. Mm-hmm. Well, it, and see, seeing how food travels in different ways, it, going
2: through these recipes, um, all of which are delicious and have wonderful photos accompanying them, uh, you talked about today in France, the globalization of the French Jewish cuisine. And, and for instance, you gave an example of a Shabbat dinner and and how that would have so many different dishes from so many different regions all in the same dinner. Or let's say a Passover, I was talking to a friend and she had a Passover dinner she had, she may have had dishes from 70 different countries at a, at a large gathering.
3: Right, well, you know, it, it, first of all, because there's so much intermarriage, like I remember one person was telling me that... Her husband was Moroccan and she was Tunisian. And Passover, there's this delicious stew called masokhi, which is a Tunisian stew. And it's got, it's a lamb-based, you could do beef-based if you wanted to. But um, it has um, artichoke and spinach and mint and um, fava beans. And it's just beautiful. That's what with the main course of the Tunisian family but her family always had a soupy stew with fava beans that was Moroccan. So I said, well, What do you do? <laughs> you yeah, have both, you know, which is a lot of work, but that's what you do. Uh-huh. And then uh, a Friday night dinner with, when I went to a Tunisian home, um, it would have been uh, a, a, a meat couscous where the meat is embedded in artichoke hearts and in peppers it's really oh, a delicious wow. delicious all, dish. Those, all of those stuffed vegetables you were talking about yeah the, provencal the, i mean right basically. exactly provencal yeah. and you can see you know you can see uh, uh, dishes that are similar in provence but this is ones that came from north africa or the sabbath stew which is the north african sabbath stew is very similar to many dishes in the south of France, like cassoulet, mm-hmm. where you have beans and you have meat. And, and you know, it's cooked overnight. Um, there, there are just so many. Del- and the salads. You know, I was speaking to somebody from Morocco who is living in this country. And he said, I miss my mother's Moroccan French Cooking because she had at least twenty-five different salads for uh, Friday night uh-huh. dinner, and they're wonderful. They're all cooked salads, so you can make them in advance. So we're busy yeah, cooks. Is, well, that and you and you did a nice um, section on
2: that, talking about the different dishes that are adapted specifically for the dietary laws and the rules about not lighting the fire. Right. right? Exactly. So things that could be cooked long in the oven overnight, and and. Served at room temperature. Right? Yes, and we still see those on on many tables today. Well, always see them on tables right. today. Right?
3: But it, it's fun to be able to look at a friend. Like for example, a uh, choucroute garni If you want to talk about the um, the Jews of Alsace, mm-hmm. and you realize if you look at old text, they criticize the choucroute. And they, the the smelliness of the Jews stews, and you realize, wait a minute, maybe the the cabbage stews were something that originated with Jews. I don't know if they did or not, but but they certainly learned about pickling early on, mm-hmm. and and a lot of um, Jews of Alsace will have shup, uh, sauerkraut. In there with their beef as a Saturday stew, right. which is very different from the Jews of the south of France, and that was something. Understanding that was something that I really learned from from doing research for this book. You know, in a lot of I think food history research, you sort of have to think about what what you're seeing and you can't rely on history books no because a lot of it they didn't write food
2: history i mean you had you had to get somebody's diaries basically and find out what they sat down to dinner with right
3: right exactly and you had to learn you know where they came from because clearly it, they always say that the crusade with the crusades Chickpeas came across. Well, whoever was leaving the Middle East, I don't care who it was, would have brought some dried chickpeas and, and, and planted them wherever they were going because that was a staple. There were no beans that's right. in, in other, other than fava beans, chickpeas, and then, of course, lentils. lentils is, right. And that's what they were using. I mean, it's just fascinating to me. Well, in
2: talking to one of our mutual friends, Najmia Majli uh, a couple of weeks ago about the Persian celebration of uh, Nauruz, the vernal equinox. So, I mean, the dishes are, some of the, some, so many of the dishes are so similar. Well, that was the whole culture, the whole Persian Empire, then moving north and, and going into Gaul. So it, it is interesting to see how so many of these dishes migrated and then what happened to them. But I think the influences from the north are, um, you know, are very surprising that they will appear on the same table, as you say, you know, in, in certain families in certain regions. And uh,
3: and it is a s-
2: wonderful thing to
3: explore. Well, e- you know, and e- even a simple thing like f- um, bitter herbs uh, for Passover, mm-hmm. which is coming up, um, if you take right in France, horserad- one of the main areas of horseradish production in the world is Alsace. And G- Jews, Sephardic Jews to this day, have always used romaine lettuce or something bitter which is really goes way back to ancient Israel when Passover was a spring festival celebrating the spring. The spring, And so you would have whatever bitter herbs is coming up, that's what you would eat. And that's what popped up first. Right. Right, exactly, but not in Alsace. They wouldn't have had them at the time of Passover, but what bitter herbs grew up were the leaves of the horseradish root, and so they used the horseradish root as a symbol of bitter herbs. So you can see... The the way that that traveled to Eastern Europe and and traveled to America and then found, finds itself with the green
2: on the same plate exactly right yeah. have that well. Um, it- there are so many wonderful, as I say, so many wonderful recipes in this book, and so much interesting history that you did. How long did it? How long did you do? It the, took me
3: four years. How many times did you go back? and well, visit? well, that you had to go back to France. I know. You. I just, I know. <laughs> um, I, I keep thinking about when I'm going back next. <laughs> right. I went about six times, and they were twelve day periods. And very intensive twelve days, and you know what fun it was—just peeking around the different communities and spending a lot of time in Paris, since half the population is in Paris.
2: Uh, well, and that's interesting too. Um, I found that very interesting in the background that you gave—that originally most of the pockets of the Jewish communities were outside the cities,
3: in the small towns. Right. They were and not, then, and now we find them all in the major cities. Right. Well, they were not allowed to live in the major cities. No. Oh, well, so. so they were in in the south of France. They. Um, they lived in um, – they called carrières, which were basically ghettos Gettos. from the 14th century to the 18th century that were closed at night at 8 o'clock and opened at 8 o'clock in the morning. So so we're talking not until the 1800s where they uh – Actually emancipated, emancipated, really. Right. They and they were not allowed to live in big towns. They were had to live in small towns all over France, and they they but they lived mostly in Alsace in the south of France. And then, um, as soon as they were allowed to move to, to towns, they went to Strasbourg. They were allowed to enter towns, but they weren't allowed to live in towns. Hmm. And you know, and that that makes you realize that Jews in America and Israel really are. Very comfortable about their Jewishness, mm-hmm. um, but in France, it's much more at home. It's undercover, but it's not just France; it's all over the world. Yeah. And and that you know, a lot of Jews don't understand that. But for sure, in France, and and the French are much more um, reserved anyway. So I had to do a lot of you know, of of sort of. I, I felt that I was going fishing writing this book. Um, sometimes I would reel in a big catch. Sometimes. Nothing. A no. wall. Yeah. But, and very often people would meet me in a cafe first, which is typical of France, before they'd let me. Before into they invite s- you into the home, we'll meet someplace else. But, more, but so. some, I'll, I can tell you one quick story about, um, I was in Bergheim in, the, in, in Alsace with my editor, Judith Jones, and I it was a beautiful, beautiful town in the wine country. And I asked a woman at, at this, uh, Wienstube where we went for dinner, were there any Jews in the town? Because you sometimes you just didn't know what you mm-hmm. were going to find. And she said, one. And then she said, and there's a synagogue. And this was a big synagogue in this tiny town. Well, I realized that it was a wine center in the 14th century. Ah. And now it was a cultural wine center, meaning the town. And they had this synagogue. And they had an important rabbi at that time. And um, then I, I interviewed this woman who was the, the, the one remaining person, and we went, knocked on her door the next morning. I was with Judith Jones, my editor, and um, she said to me um, that she, she said that her daughter was was a really good cook, and she talked about living in, in, in Bergheim and that her daughter wanted her to come to Paris, but she really wanted to stay there because this was home for her. And she had been a a, a, her husband was a um, butcher, Jewish, a kosher butcher before Mm -hmm. the war, and as soon as the war started, um, uh, Alsace was annexed, and they went down to the south of France, and he worked as a butcher hidden. um, And and they came back, but they came back to Alsace, where most people didn't come to these small towns because they had a business there. And um, and I said to her, "Well, your daughter is, um, you know." is a, a friend of mine or no? She, I said to her I'd like to speak to your daughter she said she'll call in a few minutes but look at the television right now because she's on television she's like the Barbara Walter she didn't say that yeah. but I said that of France so she uh, she was on television and then the phone call and then the, the mother said she'll call me to see if I'm alive so she calls <laughs> her afterwards and, and by before then the mother said to me that she was a great cook she made wonderful pâte au feu and she made wonderful um, Alsatian kugel that I was describing to you before, and then I got on the phone with her, and and she said, I I want to speak to my mother's helper, and then I got her telephone number. I could see she just wanted to get rid of me, so I met her in Paris, and she, again, met me at a a café near the Assemblée Générale where she was doing um, reporting, and then we got along great. We have become very good friends. She's had me over for dinner. Um, She's in the book, and I have these wonderful recipes from her. So you never know what you're going to get and what you're not going to get and where it's going to lead. And that's what's beautiful – about this kind of food writing. Well, the stories,
2: and the stories truly are beautiful. They're beautiful stories, and the history is very informative, and the recipes are delicious, and the (laughs) pictures... I had to stop reading when I was hungry one evening because it was was killing me. The pictures were beautiful and and mouth-watering. And the book, again, is called... Keisha's Kugels, and Couscous, My Search for Jewish Cooking in France. Joan Nathan, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on A Taste of the Past. And as always, I'm Linda Palaccio, and I hope you'll join us next time.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. The following is a public service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. The Snacky Tunes compilation has arrived and is available for free on our website heritageradionetwork.com. This compilation features live performances from some of the hottest acts around today, including Midnight Magic, Surfer Blood, Overhoffer, and more. Again, you can download this compilation for free on our website heritageradionetwork.com, and make sure to listen to Snacky Tunes every Monday at 2 p.m. on Heritage Radio Network.